I would be all about an OnlyFans, but, like, I just don't want to be, like, that story everyone heard where she had an OnlyFans, where she sat on balloons and popped them with her ass. She was fully clothed, but still she lost her job. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You are listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to learn about a physicist who didn't lose her humanity and also a Mexican poet and painter who was actually named after the destruction of humanity. Who was? Oh, look at that. That's fun. We just have the cycle of life today. (laughs) That was not planned, (laughs) y'all. Again, I wish we could say, yeah, totally, but no. 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 (laughs) That's not how we roll. There's, like, no communication before we record. (laughs) It's like a fun surprise. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Very cool. All right. You said you're doing a, a physicist? Yes. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I brought in my dad. I have audio recording of him explaining things to me because I'm dumb. <laughs> Why don't you start by telling us about your physicist today? Because I am I'm super suspicious of theoretical physicists because I'm like, what are y'all really doing all day? Really? Well, this is not a theoretical physicist. Yeah, your person sounds like she's actually got some, like, concrete work she's actually doing. Oh, my God, the look in your eyes. (laughs) Guys, I have no idea what we're in for today. (laughs) I just hope she doesn't science too hard at us. Look, I've tried. I tried. I want you all to know that I tried. I need you to understand that my science knowledge is mostly biological. I think we've all hit on that. Okay. Yeah. I just, physics, my brain, it hurts. So yeah, she did some real shit. (laughs) Okay, cool. I can get behind that. I mean, theoretical stuff is all fine and dandy, but like, end of the day, it's theoretical. I mean, like, at the end of it, she might have done a little bit of like theoretical stuff just because I think she was bored. And she was retired, and she's like, "Well, yeah, what if I just throw this in? Let me do something new." But she was not; okay. she was not known okay. for her theoretical physics. Nay, nay. Okay. I mean, not that that technically is a disqualifier for me. I'm just, I'm saying these are my personal biases, so you know. Yeah, I know. I know. Everyone's got their thing. So, what's the <laughs> the person you're covering today? What's her thing? Yeah. So her thing is nuclear physics, which is double why I called in my dad because he does radiation yeah oh hey that's exactly what he does okay cool that's exactly what he does yeah Mm -hmm. so we are going to talk today about a lisa meitner born elise meitner in vienna austria in 1878 the birth registrar of vienna's jewish community lists her birthday as november 17th but like every other documentation and even she goes by november 7th so we'll go with the 7th so Mom's name was Hedwig. Okay. Dad's name was Philip. I don't really know what Hedwig did, but Philip was a lawyer and a chess master. 
Oh, okay. I think that's a first. <laughs> yeah, no, that was one of those like, oh, okay. <laughs> he was in some like um, pretty well-known chess matches too, which is really weird. <laughs> okay, you know what's weird? So the the father of my person today also has a very particular place in history. What? <laughs> that he's well-known for. Yeah. <laughs> Um, spoiler, his is not, uh, chess. No. It's, um, actual, like, rifles, but, oh, you know. Oh, okay. The exact opposite of chess. It's a little bit more aggressive form of, um, <laughs> tactics. <laughs> oh, God. No. Regardless, this family, upper middle class Jewish family, right? Mm-hmm. Lisa was the third of eight kids. Eight. Okay. Right? Every single one of them pursued higher education and dad was really happy about it he pushed for it yeah oh nice yeah and like as a kid lisa was all about like science stuff i don't know like she was eight doing science experiments like really basic physics and like loving it right Mm -hmm. so the thing is that women weren't allowed to pursue higher education until 1897 so she stopped going to school at age 13 that was 1892 Okay. She just instead, like, I guess that was, like, the end of the middle school years. Like, she didn't go on to high school. Mm-hmm. And, like, the thing that she was allowed to do in Vienna was be a teacher. She was a French teacher. So she was training as a French teacher. And then she was bopping around until people could go to higher education. And she saw her older sister, Gisela, go back to school. So what Gisela did was... She wanted to become a physician. She was going to be a doctor. And she mm-hmm. had to pass what is called the, I, I really don't know how to say this, guys. It is, it's, the full name is Machura Zygnis, Zygnis, Zygnis. The last part of it is Z-E-U-G-N-I-S. Um, but it's known as the Machura or the Matura, I guess. So that's what people call it because it's okay. such a long fucking word. <laughs> nobody's got time for these many like nobody has time for this no one <laughs> yeah not even the people in vienna so her sister passed that and then went to school to become a physician and when she saw gisella do it lisa was like i don't want to be a french teacher i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this thing right so she crams yeah yeah i'm like she right? can do it i can do it too she crams two years of her high school education into her head it takes it and is one of two of one of the two women who passed out of the 14 that took it okay well basically this exam is like a like an exit exam really like it's an sat but it's a little bit more reformed than that like if you don't pass it you're really not getting into higher education like okay all right yeah and it's a lot more uniform which i would i don't know i would really prefer that if i'm being honest just because like it's also an exit exam like it's not just like finals that you have at the end of your like of your senior year and it's at a local level education bar like Mm -hmm. this was at like a full federal like countrywide bar and i feel like that's something that we should have here but that's a whole nother (laughs) yeah that's that's yeah a whole nother monster for a whole nother day yeah. Yeah. So she does that. And then she finds her way to the University of Vienna. This is exciting. 1901. There she found herself the um, the student of an individual named Ludwig 
Boltzmann. And he is physicist and philosopher of statistical mechanics. Okay. Also the father of the statistical explanation of the second law of thermodynamics. I knew that name sounded familiar. <laughs> he provided the current definition of entropy, which is a very important thing in chemistry. I'm not, I'm not going to get into it. And then he's also like a constant, like a scientific constant in a like in an equation that's used like worldwide is named after him. So he's oh, very well okay. known. Yeah, it sounds a little important. A little intimidating. And he's a little, like he was brilliant, but he was the brilliant that like was was tortured and ended up committing suicide later on. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it wasn't it wasn't fun, but like people who studied under him, they were often compelled to continue their studies and they felt like revitalized when they listened to him. Like they loved mm-hmm. his lectures and that that's where Lisa Meitner really like it clicked for her that she was going she was going to learn physics. This was her thing, right? Mm-hmm. So she ends up she I guess she just like bypassed undergrad and master she gets a PhD. Don't know how that works. I mean, okay. <laughs> it was the 1800s or early 1900s. I, I don't know how the Vienna like school system worked, but she got a PhD. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that'll save on student loans. Right? And, like, what do you do after you get a PhD? Like, where do you go from there? And she was actually – she met a lot of people at the University of Vienna, and those connections ushered her to the Friedrich Wilhelm University. I'm really fucking this up. I'm not the best with German. But this is in Berlin, and she sat under the lectures of Max Planck, or Planck, Max Planck. Um, and he's a theoretical physicist who won the Nobel Prize in Physics for his discovery of energy quanta. And I'm going to say no more than that, because quantum physics is just as Thank much you. fuckery as it sounds, and I'm not qualified to explain any of it. So if you really want to, you can Figure that out on your own. Oh, goodness. Nevertheless, she sat through a lot of his lectures, became friends with him, and she would honestly find herself surrounded entirely by men and women in science like him. So fathers and mothers of their particular field. So if you are a physicist or scientist at all, these names will mean something to you, the ones I'm about to say. So Adolf von Bayer, James Franck, Gustav Hertz, Robert Pohl. Max Planck, which I just talked to you about, Peter mm-hmm. Pringsheim, and Wilhelm West, Westphal, Westphal, Westphal. If you're clueless, which I, I was, the only thing you need to know is that all these people either won Nobel Prizes for their work or were credited for their work as jumping points by Nobel Prize winners during their speeches. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so this brilliant circle of people was her community and her family, right? Mm-hmm. And one very big person in her chosen family was a man named Otto Hahn. So while she's at the Friedrich Wilhelm Institute, she would find herself in the lab he was working in. And he was an assistant there with a paycheck, and she was a woman. So she could only be a guest, an observer. Mm. But they co-authored close to ten papers over two years together. And Oh, so they, they really clicked then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> she would go on to calling him, like, her brother. Yeah. Yeah, nice. So they also introduced, like, the radioactive recoil method as a way to physically separate elements. So this well, sounds mildly cancerous. It's not. <laughs> I mean, that's good, I guess. <laughs> it's not. 
So this is why I had to bring in my dad because I was like, what the actual heck? He used a metaphor for billiards. So think of the cue ball as an alpha particle or a proton or a neutron. And an alpha okay. particle is basically, um, it's like a little helium molecule with two two neutrons and two protons. Okay. It's a baby helium molecule. Technically, a helium molecule is actually one neutron. But it's just, it's another name for a helium molecule, right? So they throw it at okay. a nucleus. And this cue ball goes and it can hit a ball. And if it hits the ball straight on, the ball moves, the particle stays, right? Okay. If it hits the ball, like, on the side, they both move in opposite directions. So depending yeah. on how that particle moves, it can either come back to you or go off on the other side. Like, there's a recoil with the radiation being emitted towards a nucleus. Okay. And it's there All just right. simply to break apart the nucleus of an ad- of an element and make something new, which is something totally new and crazy and different because you're usually not like it's it's not easy to do that like the bond in a nucleus is so strong that it takes a lot of effort to break apart a nucleus it's a lot Mm -hmm. easier to do with a smaller nucleus than a bigger nucleus which we'll get into later but like okay i promise you this will make sense okay all right i'm just i'm i'm gonna stop the science are you still with me i'm here for the ride are you still with me yes no questions no, not yet. Okay, good, perfect. We're moving on. 1912, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Chemistry was opened because beforehand they were uh, operating an old woodworking lab. <laughs> there were radioactive spills everywhere. It was just not fun. So, <laughs> Wait, like, I'm sorry, you said woodworking lab. Like, someone's <laughs> making cabinets and tables. No, and it was like an old while... one that nobody used anymore it was just like an empty space that was an old wood- woodworking lab with no like proper like containments or anything like that it wasn't made to be a chemistry lab or physics lab or just numerous porous surfaces just everywhere <laughs> yeah. so they finally like moved on and like that lab actually ended up being a storage room because there were already spills <laughs> You're like, don't go in that back corner. It's mildly radioactive. But aside from that, you're good. Watch the mice. It's the early 1900s. What are you going to do, man? This is why we have OSHA and safety standards. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, okay, I'm glad they moved into a much nicer facility. (laughs) It was pretty great. And it was was, uh, like a movement forward because Han became a professor and... Meitner was still just a guest, but eventually Han would persuade the university to take her on as an assistant to him. Uh, and it was a okay. it was a paid position, so he was like, "Yeah, nice. She needs to be here." Yeah, no, that's 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 cool that he's trying to facilitate her being in- ingrained in the system as well. Right, right, right. And then World War One happened, and Han was a dude, and he was called the service. Okay. And she herself ended up working as an x-ray war technician for a while. So between deployments and things, they would come back to the lab and do more research. Mm-hmm. And then this one was, like, really, this this time frame was specifically attributed for, or was put towards finding new elements on the table of elements. Specifically, protactinium, which is a radioactive element used in nuclear reactors today. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. So they found a totally new radioactive element that, like another place, I guess, kind of figured it out, but they had no idea what they were looking at. They had no idea how they got there. And Meitner mm-hmm. was able to fit those pieces together. So it was just kind of like, a, okay, well, she gets to name it. It's her discovery. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And then the lab was actually split up into two because Han was more of a chemist and Lisa was more of a physicist. So they they were like peanut butter and jelly, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so either way, they like worked together, but they, they were looking at things in, from different perspectives and different angles. And that's mm-hmm. why they worked together so well. And that's how they were able to discover what they were discovering. 1924, she was granted her habilitation in Prussia. So habilitation is like a certification, basically. A certificate, if you will. Uh, It allows the person awarded to essentially become a professor. There is a test and a thesis that they have to write. But at this point, Lisa had published over 40 papers. So they waived, like... You don't need a thesis. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, you're you're good. You you you're already active in the field. You're, you're, you're solid. Yeah, and then you also have to be endorsed. And she was endorsed by several very important physicists: Planck, Lauer, and Albert Franking Einstein. I was wondering if he would come into the mix. Yep, <laughs> he was okay. a friend. All right. Yeah, they were together, and they like they taught together. They were in each other's lectures. Like they would sit in each other's lectures. Like. Yeah, like, she was surrounded by these brilliant freaking minds. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm geeking out because I can't imagine being that smart. Like, how? Ha! Ah, I'm okay. I'm not jealous. There's not a woman crush going on here. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> she was the first woman in Prussia to earn her habilitation in physics. She eventually later became the first female professor of physics in Germany. And people would literally travel to her lectures just to see her because she asserted that only her lab would allow her the ability to properly demonstrate her lectures and her experiments. And they're like, yeah, I'll travel 20 miles to see you in 1920-something. <laughs> That's impressive that, you know. She had that power. Yeah, that people were traveling yeah. to come see her and to see the work that she was doing. So great. So brilliant. Ah, oh my god. Okay. <laughs> so. While teaching her little underlings, she decided to team back up with Han and a new dude named Fritz Strassmann, right? This was in 1934-1938. The team worked specifically... (laughs) I just... Wait, at that point in history, things were a little dicey in Germany. (laughs) The team worked specifically on experimenting with transmutation, so just the changing of chemicals and products and elements into other things, um, mm-hmm. using, like, finding new radioactive isotopes, half-lives. I, I've, I've covered these before, basically just different kinds of the same element and figuring out how long radioactive elements have to be radioactive, essentially, like their shelf life. Okay. They were finding new pieces to the radioactive puzzle. They were even finding new laws. It was kind of nuts. Okay. Does like one of them get cancer by the end of this? Because no, oddly enough. Okay, that's that's good. It sounds like <laughs> for studying stuff like this, especially in the 1920s and 30s, yeah. safety standards might have been a little questionable. I know. I'm. Wa- I was waiting for it too. No. Okay. Good. Meitner 
Uh, she even hypothesized like a totally new class of reaction, as well as experimented with specific uranium reaction to find the explanation for like the new products that they were finding. So she was, I don't know, she was just like putting all the pieces together. And this is all good and well, yeah. but again, she was a Jewish woman in 1938 Germany. Yeah. And like she had technically converted, she's a Protestant, but that didn't. Okay. Yeah, but still, like that's that's still dicey. That didn't change her ethnicity. You know, that's a tense time to be living there. Yeah. Germany's invasion of Austria caused her to lose her Austrian citizenship. She was basically a sitting duck. So she was a professor and a PhD advisor with three PhD students. And once those students had finished their program, it was get out or be fired or worse. So what did she do? What happened? Her friends were freaking out just as much as she was. And a Dutch doctoral candidate named Dirk Koster, 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 who she had met in 1921, was going to get her out. So, like, he was like, come to Copenhagen. We have not Nazis and a job waiting for you at the University of Groningen, specifically a one-year position devoted solely to nuclear physics. So that was exciting. And she was not allowed to cross the border because she was, like, an academic, but also she was Jewish and they wanted to keep her in Germany, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So they like they looked at her, uh, like her passport and her citizenship, and they were like, "Nope." So she was. I mean, she accepted, but she had to find a way to get out. So, July twelfth, nineteen thirty-eight, she went to work at the lab, grinded some papers, clocked out, headed to a training station to meet Coaster by chance. Hey. Yeah. She had ten marks, which is which was the German like currency. Yeah. Which is also about like 20 U.S. bucks back then, not now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then she also had Han's mother's diamond ring that he gave her in case of an emergency. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, you know, with that, she was believed to be Coaster's wife, like the professor's wife instead of, Mm -hmm. and Coaster was Swedish. So she ended up crossing the like country border without being caught. I mean, whatever it takes, especially in a situation like that. Yeah. <laughs> she was, peace, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, there was even, like, a telegram from a fellow scientist, like, one of the friends in their circle that was, like, it was to Coaster, the, the Swedish physicist. And they were, like, you're as famous for the abduction of Lisa Meitner as for the discovery of Hafnium. <laughs> like. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. So for the rest of the war, she remained in Copenhagen, and she was obviously stressed because there's a good chunk of her family still back in Germany, and her own yeah. brother-in-law ended up in a concentration camp. He did get out, thankfully. Okay. Uh, yeah. But it was just really a lot to deal with, obviously. And she buried herself in her work, and this was important because it was also during the time that Han and Strassmann back in Germany we're focusing on chemistry and this like new weird situation that was happening. So this is where I'm like, how do I explain this? All right, here we go. All right, buckle up, everyone. <laughs> they were playing with a new type of uranium, which is a radioactive element. They were yes. irradiating it. They were shooting it with little with little neutrons. Right. These little okay. particles. You got you. You know what a neutron is, right? Yes. Yeah. You're fucking crazy. For those at home, 
maybe a refresher. <laughs> we use it the nucleus. That's the the little inside squishy bit. So very inside. Uh, well, the the neutron is the inside of the nucleus. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I definitely knew that yeah. once. Once, yeah. So protons and neutrons live in the nucleus, and electrons live outside, right? Oh, yeah. I also totally knew that. And neutrons have a neutral charge, so you're not adding any more charges into the nucleus and causing more issues for yourself. You're just throwing a neutron at a nucleus and wondering if it'll stick. Okay. Okay. So that's that's right. what's like throwing spaghetti at a wall, right? Except it's a yes. nuclear element or a radioactive element. Excuse me. Okay, so it's just it's spaghetti. You just can't eat. Okay, maybe it went off. <laughs> it's in the back of the fridge or something. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know. Uh, <laughs> so they were focusing on the chemistry, and they were playing with that, and they came up with some unusual products in their experiment. So you remember when I told you that you can break up the nucleus of an element? Yeah. Okay. There is a big difference between breaking up a nucleus that has four protons in it versus 400 protons in it. It's a much bigger nucleus than simple old radioactive recoil breaking things apart, right? Yeah. Basically, the products at the end of the experiment looked more and acted more like a chemical barium. And barium is 40% of the nucleus, of the original nucleus size. So you're You're taking off essentially half of the nucleus, almost half of the nucleus, which is not easy to do when you have about 400 protons in its nucleus. I'm rounding up. It's obviously not just 400, but it's it's around there. Okay. Yes. So you're not just like, like it's harder to do. And they were like, what is this? Like, is this a uranium isotope? Like, is it, why does it act like barium? Like, why does it look like this? Like, what's going on? So yeah, you can break down molecules, you can break down different isotopes, whatever. They lose an electron, gain an electron, I don't know. But to change one element to another, it's very difficult. At least things like that, like that big of an element. And they were like, okay, yo, like, this is weird. They send a letter to Meitner and they're like, check this out, this is weird. And Meitner was like, yeah, that's fucking weird, yo. And she sat down with her nephew, Otto Hahn Frisch, who was actually one of the scientists who work on who worked on the atomic bomb during the Manhattan Project. Oh, okay. So it runs in the family. Yeah. They sat under a tree and just, like, scribbled things out. So remember, Han was chemistry, looked things chemically. Meitner was looking at this experiment through the eyes of physics. So here she mm. was able to apply physical laws to this experiment to account for a weak enough nucleus to break. It wasn't as strong as they had thought. Okay. Just the way that it was formed, and they they had they had called it wobbly. It wasn't as stable of a nucleus. It was it was looking for stability, and when a neutron hit that nucleus, it did the exact opposite of stability and broke it in half, essentially. Okay. And she also applied Einstein's e equals mc squared theory. Einstein came up with energy equals mc squared, so energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Okay. So yeah. the mass of what was lost basically made up for the amount of energy that was being, like, emitted from the break. Because they were like, how did all this energy come from? Like, what is happening here? Yeah, that redistribution based off of mass. Okay. Right, because you can't, you can't, it just gets redistributed. You can't break, you can't um, destroy or 
make energy. Mm-hmm. That's like a basic like physics law. So she accounted for all of these missing pieces and then sent it back to Hans. And Han was like, fuck yeah, this is awesome. Great. So they both write up papers okay. on both their sides. Yeah. His chemical, her physics. And by the way, it wasn't a radioactive isotope of uranium. It was actually barium. Like it actually turned it into barium. Okay. So to recap, the, the physical process, they were able to put the element under like actually change the molecular structure transforming it into a completely different element yeah barium and a bunch of other elements but yes okay yeah all by doing so by attacking the nucleus with neutral little billiard balls of energy with yeah with a neutron yes okay (laughs) all right cool i just just want to make sure i'm on the same page yeah no it was i i'm i'm just holding on just barely like it's a lot yeah, so suddenly there was now an understanding of nuclear fission. It's born. So you, yeah, it says you shoot an alpha particle or an energy packet at an atom, break it apart, create new products. But most importantly, you're making energy and lots of it. And that's what they wanted. So nuclear fission blew up, metaphorically, right? <laughs> I did a few instances, literally. Wait for it. It's time for someone to win a Nobel Prize. Because nuclear fission is a huge discovery, and it's a new form of energy and power that has been discovered, and it was just these four wonderful people who discovered nuclear fission, right? So they all have to get... What could possibly go wrong with this new type of energy that humanity (laughs) will harness for the well-being of the entire planet? And they all have to get equal representation and recognition for their hard work, right? Oh no. What happened? It was Nazi Germany. I feel like you could say that in any instance where something goes wrong. Like, what happened? I mean, it was Nazi Germany. It was the Nazis. <laughs> Unfortunately, that still applies today. I know. I know. You're like, how was the traffic around D.C.? Oh, it was terrible. Oh, fucking Nazis. Fucking Nazis. I, it, was, it was bad. It was bad. <laughs> yeah, like the fucking original Nazis, too? Ugh. Yeah. Meitner and her nephew were Jewish, and she was a woman, so they were literally written out of the narrative. Yeah. So this was this was on two ends. So one from the Nazi Germany side, and two from some guy who didn't love Meitner. Like, he was Swedish, but he didn't love her, and he was on the Nobel Committee and was, like, oh, actively okay. trying to keep her out of it. Yeah. And... There was also pressure coming down on Hans' head. So, you know, he was still in Germany. He had a job and a life, and people were pressuring him to take the... They were just take it and go, essentially. Like, they were pressuring him to tell people that nuclear fission was discovered solely through chemistry and not through physics. And Mm. the Nobel Committee was like, it was just you and Strassman. It was only chemistry that discovered nuclear fission. That's it. Take your prize. And to save his ass, he went along with the narrative. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he won it, the Nobel Prize for nuclear fission okay. in chemistry. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she was like, you know what? He should get a, a Nobel Prize for for nuclear fission in chemistry. Like, <laughs> you're right. He did the chemistry part. But also, like, yeah, I definitely, like, what me and my nephew ended up finding on our ends were not insignificant to nuclear fission. But he didn't, like, she didn't hold that against Han. 
like at all. Yeah, that's a situation where there's so many variables and just being in Germany at that time just put him at such yeah. risk. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know what we would have done in a situation like that. It, yeah, like, and I think I think she knew that, um, but I mean, I mean, it's still gonna hurt knowing that you contributed to it. Like that's oh for sure. That's not gonna make a difference. And I, I think she was less upset about the Nobel Prize than she was at at other things. Like she loved Han, but um, she didn't let him off as like that easily. When she let him off that easy for the Nobel Prize, but she was critical of herself and for other physicists in Germany at the time. Okay. And the reason was she had actually written him a letter that I actually never got to him, thankfully. But I think I think she had still was able to express this to him later on. But it said, quote, you all worked for Nazi Germany and you did not even try passive resistance. Granted, you to absolve your conscience, you helped some oppressed person here and there, such as myself. But millions of innocent human beings were murdered and there was no protest. Here in neutral Sweden, long before the end of the war, there was discussion of what should be done with German scholars once the war was over. What, then, must the English and Americans be thinking? I and many others are of the opinion that the one path for you would be to deliver an open statement that you are aware that though your passivity, you share responsibility for what has happened, and that you have the need to work for what can be done to make amends. But many think it is too late for that. These people say that first you betrayed your friends, then your men, and your, and your children in that you let them stake their lives on a criminal war. And finally, the, you betrayed Germany. So she was like... I mean, that's, that's a very straight way of putting it. Yeah. Like, like it was our fault. Like, And she was even, like again, hard on herself. She's like, it was not only stupid but very wrong that I did not leave Germany once it all happened. Yeah. Like, like I should have gone. Not just for myself, but for, like... She was very aware that her work was German because she did it in Germany. And they could take that and keep it as their own that ownership of it yeah yeah she didn't want any hands in the war really Mm -hmm. even later when Otto was recruited for the Manhattan project for the bomb Lisa was also extended the invitation to come to the states and work on it and she was like I will have nothing to do with a bomb yeah not doing it it's not gonna end well like yeah (laughs) and the the man that was um against her in the Nobel Prize lived in Sweden and she felt like she couldn't stay and work there anymore so she left in 1948 she moved to Cambridge she kept lecturing working researching she stayed close friends with Hans with Han would would visit him Mm -hmm. here and there was he was still practically her brother and I mean although she became a Swedish a Swedish citizen in 1949 but I guess she left whatever she's fine she taught, she did her lectures, applied magical numbers to nuclear fission, like I told you. She, like, took her, like, her nuclear fission was like, what if we put imaginary numbers in here? And that's when I was like, nope. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Incorrect. Bad, Lisa. Bad. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All over our heads, obviously. But she retired in 1960, and she just, like, putted around giving lectures and part-time teaching, because why not? People wanted to hear her speak. She was a brilliant woman mm-hmm. um, until she could no longer do it, and she ended up in a Cambridge nursing home. She had a heart attack, and that's not how she died, but her, like, her, her health declined after that. After that, And she yeah. passed away in her sleep October 27th of 1968. Mm. And on her tombstone, it actually says, physicist who never lost her humanity. Was there ever acknowledgement from the um, Nobel Peace Prize committee? Yeah, I think people uh, are aware, like, they, 
you can see the conversations between the committee 50 years after the initial um, nomination. Okay. And you could you can read them and see what was said and see how very deliberate it was to keeping her out of the picture and out of the narrative. Yeah. Um, and I think that was just like one of like the shitty no shitty moments of world history. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I was wondering if like you know since then the Nobel Peace Prize committee has come out and been like you know we acknowledge there is no posthumous, unfortunately. Okay. Well, yeah, that's my lady. All right. She was loved by all. Captain Humanity. I like it. <laughs> it's it's very funny because the pictures of her, she's just this small, she's she's your stature. Hey, hey, I'm feisty size. Right, but she's a feisty woman, but she was just this, she was your stature around, like, towering German men and women and, like, smoking a cigarette, like, this is fine. <laughs> yeah, as you do. This is my life. Like, I'm surrounded by Nobel Prize winners. Like, what more can I want? Like, yeah, she was she was living her life. She was regarded with a lot of positivity by everybody who knew her. And that's yeah. a wonderful thing to hear. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. And that is, can you say your name again? Lisa Meitner. Lisa Meitner. All right. Well, I like how for your physicist, she did not lose her humanity. The person I'm doing today is named after a Aztec concept of the destruction of humanity. I like where this is going. I know. I could not ask for a better segue. <laughs> now, obviously, she did not bring about the extinction of humanity, although some days it feels like that. <laughs> but we're doing pretty good. We are going to Mexico today. Yay! For my artist. Mexico! Yes. A little bit of Spain and some France, but really, we're here for Mexico. Mm-hmm. And we have been there before last season, episode 36, Let's Escape America, volume two. And that was with painter Maria Izquierdo. Oh, yeah. I like her. I liked her work. There is a whole pocket of Mexican painters, and I was like, wow, I just want to cover all of them. And we actually are going to head back to Mexico. I believe for Halloween, there's another artist I'm going to cover. She does really weird, like, surrealist work that I think is really fitting for, like, a spooky kind of episode. Yeah, so we're we're going to be back. But today, we're not hitting up on spooky so much. Instead, we are covering a painter, poet, and model, Nawe Olin. Okay. She was considered one of the most beautiful women of her time. And also a force to be reckoned with, which is really fitting since her name, Nawe Olin, which I might be slightly mispronouncing. No apologies. It's a concept from the Aztec calendar, essentially meaning disruptive cosmic force that may or may not result in humanity's extinction. Quick side note, I plan on looking into brujeria, which is uh, witchcraft, like old school witchcraft. I've heard that term used more for like like for puerto rico oh yeah yeah yeah. not mexican but like every 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 culture has their witches right yeah, version but of i would be more um i'm looking more into like south american central american witches instead of like our, a lot of our friends do like celtic pagan stuff yeah i feel like that's super popular yeah anyway just thought i'd let you know oh okay <laughs> i'm spiritually dead inside but whatever makes you happy 
<laughs> That's cool. I like woke up one day and my my brain was like, witchcraft. <laughs> and I was like, all right, okay. I recently woke up one day and my brain was like, moisturizer. <laughs> so I bought three. <laughs> I mean, yeah, those mornings. <laughs> Ah, the differences between you and me. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be ready going into the summer. I'm going to have such soft, <laughs> hydrated skin. Yeah. yeah, there's really no witchcraft involved in the making of today at all. Damn. Although I feel like some people would probably call her something of a witch, but with a B at times. So there's that. We're in second grade. Yeah. We are going all the way back to 1893. Okay. Wow. That's not bad. So about what? Yeah, 20 years after the physicist that you did. Yeah, not even. Yeah, like it was around that time. Yeah, like 15, 20 years or so. Yeah. And funny enough, so she was also from a family of eight children. Ooh. Yeah. So many parallels. Yeah, I know. Nawe was the fifth. And okay, I will say really quick. So I scoured and scoured how to pronounce her name, and I found a YouTube video of someone giving a PowerPoint presentation on the Mayan Aztec and this concept of it. Okay. So I'm going off of him. I might still be slightly mispronouncing it. I try. Also, when I Googled it, I'm pretty sure I found a D&D campaign based around this concept. Probably. What, what's her name again? Ya- Yahweh? Nahweh Olin. Nahweh Olin. Okay. Technically, it's it's like the the fourth cycle of the cosmic cycle, which causes like a destructive force of energy, and there there there's a lot of depth to it. And I'll touch on why later why she took that name, but um, yeah, trying to find a pronunciation guide, I was like, oh, it's a, little, a little touch and go. But true to being born into a Spanish family, her her full name is impressive. <laughs> so. Now she started going by exclusively in her late 20s. So that's how I'm going to refer to her. But her full family name is Maria del Carmen Mondragon Valcesca. So she renamed herself after the destruction of humanity? Yes. Okay. I mean, like, yeah. She's like that goth kid and like... Oh, he technically, she didn't give herself the name, if that makes you feel any better. Okay, because, like, literally, all I can think about is, like, that goth kid in, like, ninth grade who was, like, hair, oh, like, over their face, like, making sure to purposely make sure the part, like, puts the bangs in front of them, and they actually haven't washed their hair in a while, and they're in trip pants. Yeah, that's how they slick it down that well. Stupid fucking slipknot shirt, right? And then, not your slipknot shirt. Oh, okay, and not my trip pants. (laughs) Thank you very much. Is there anything else you want to say? What about the trench coat I had? Hmm? Look, you didn't rename yourself the end of humanity. You know what? When I get to the bit as to why she took that name, it all makes sense. Like, you weren't like, my name is the Destroyer. Right? You didn't, like, come on. You were just Megan. In my trip pants. In my Slipknot shirt. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually thinking about more so my ex. Okay. Yeah. But high school... High school is not a time to really be the epitome of what or of who an individual is in their life. That's true. That's yes. true. <laughs> but like when I was making that, when I was making that like picture, I was definitely making fun of 
uh, myself and him. I was thinking of him. Yeah, sure. Not your best friend. Okay. All right. Well, I'm just saying when you find out why she went by that name, it will make sense. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I believe you. But also, I think, yeah, there was, she had a flair of drama to her. Yeah. So, yeah, so. I was to say, like, she did. <laughs> yeah, she that, was that, that might have been part of it a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. But, I mean, I think you'll like it. So, so by, like, all accounts, her, her family was posh. Her dad was a very well-to-do military man. Mm-hmm. So, I will say biographical information in English is a little light. I'm okay. only working from a few sources. But there was a biography... <laughs> Google Translate and see what happened. Oh, God. No, so there was a book that came out in 1993, and then in 2019, it was updated with, like, new chapters and, like, a new introduction um, that's, like, a biography of her, and I'm like, that's great. There's no English version, and it's not online. Like, there's no, damn like, ebook of it at all. So I was like, all right, that's cool. So I'm sure there's probably more rich detail in that publication, Mm -hmm. but I... Right don't have it and on my end there's a language barrier Ooh, yeah so i feel like that's the language barrier is probably the reason why she's not as well known within the english speaking world right just because there hasn't really been that much uh publications and exhibitions done in um you know here in america or canada or elsewhere so right that's what i'm working from but i do know that nawe was born in her family's second home <laughs> Located in an area outside of Mexico City where the diplomats would keep their second houses. Oh, okay. Yes. So her father, a very prominent general who is credited with designing Mexico's first semi-automatic weapon. Yeah, so so your guys, your, your person's father was like, you know, chess master? Yeah, no. This is not, this is not what I had hoped and dreamed for. Yeah, this is this is one of those times researching. Like, wait a minute, who's her father? What did he do? Like, there uh, that's a whole different thing. But, <laughs> like, what government coup did he help stage? What? No. <laughs> so yeah, he designed Mexico's first semi-automatic weapon, and had some very other prominent rifle designs. And he he did play a. a a good role in the Mexican Revolution. Oh, okay. And that took place from 1910 to 1920. So his role in this government, it took the family abroad. So while Nawe is like 4 to 12 from 1897 to 1905, they're living in France. Why not? Yeah. And that was pretty cool because there she became fluent in French and importantly, grew up outside of the more conservative cultural climate of Mexico in the early 1900s. And that was when some fancy schmancy French art was happening. Yes. I, if there's anything I have ingrained from you from all of these podcast episodes, it is that France was like the hot place to be up until the 1920s. I am the smart one. Yeah. You got not, not the smartest. Definitely not, but I got that one. I've warned you. Yeah, because that comes up and it's like so frequently. Yeah. But yeah, so that that was a really big cultural hub and she got to grow up as a little girl kind of around it. I don't know if they were in Paris proper, mm-hmm. but I mean, either way, she received a really solid education. She was an insightful kid. And 
One of Nawe's teachers was so impressed with her writing that years later, she visited Nawe in Mexico to personally deliver the writings that she had done as a child. <gasps> yeah, like her school teacher had saved them. She kept them all these years. Yeah. What? So, man, I'm going to further the case of her being dramatic. And, and there is a, bit, a good bit of drama llama in today's story She's on my got kid. <laughs> so okay so here's an example of one of her one of her poems okay i am despair <laughs> throw a black rose into my soul but you can't because i'm soulless i'm sorry <laughs> you suck so much me nymphetomy <laughs> okay no, it goes something like this. Uh, oh, God. I am a misunderstood being who is drowned by a volcano of passions, of ideas, of thoughts, of creation that cannot be contained in my breast. So I am destined to die of love. <laughs> okay, she was 10 when she wrote that. <laughs> she was 10! Which, I don't know about you, but, like, I didn't start writing my really, like, moody poetry until I was a teen. So she was ahead of the curve. <laughs> and it's, You're going to have to continue this without me because I'm dead. <laughs> so there are only a few poem excerpts that I came across in the articles that had been translated in English. But oh my God. reading them and then, like, imagining, like, she's 10 years old and sh this is what she's writing. And then you, if you look at a picture of her father, he's, like, a very trim, athletic man. One of his, like, uniforms, he's, he's decked out in medals and he's got, like, the biggest, most stern handlebar mustache, like, of them all. Oh, no. And I just imagine him being like, oh, my goodness, this is my child. <laughs> like, I design weapons to kill people and my 10-year-old's like... I'm going to die of love. <laughs> I just, I thought it was a really funny contrast. And I was like, I really wish I knew more about their, the father-daughter dynamic growing up. There, there might have been some disagreements. Some issues. Some things. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm okay. I am okay. She was precocious when she was a kid. And oh. after the family came back from France... Back to Mexico in 1913. Nawe, she's 20. She marries a military cadet that had gone to the same military school as her father. And so that same year, her father was also kind of technically exiled from the country. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was like, he played a role in the coup of the first president to be elected during the revolution and then that guy like maybe kind of sort of got assassinated oh and so a, a second president stepped up okay and so under the second president he was head of military and everyone was like mm, we think you might overthrow this second president oh you should probably leave the country and by probably oh. you're going to oh yeah so the whole family packed up and uh back to europe again this time spain oh, okay <laughs> so him I, him and his wife I believe they never returned back to Mexico after that 
Look, all I'm saying is that, like, as somebody who moved from place to place, you get a lot of questions about where you're from, what brought you here. I mean, if you just, you know, fit that Spanish accent, you know, that slight lisp that the European Spanish have. No, a Mexican Spanish is, no. That's no, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. If you can fit that Spanish accent in Spain, you know, you just, like, blend in. Just get a little lisp. It's, it's not as easy as it sounds. I know, I know. It's like, it's like an American <laughs> trying to pick up an English accent and blend in. Oh my god! I was about to say it's like if you went down to the south and tried to do a southern accent. I mean, if you get immersed in it long enough, I've picked up y'all. You were not since I've been down oh, here yeah. in Virginia. <laughs> it sounds homey, damn it. It begins. I know. I say y'all and then hoagie in the same sentence, and John too, unironically. And people have no idea where the fuck I'm from. <laughs> So, yeah, they, the whole family out of Mexico, uh, Norway, and her husband, oh. they oh, were like, yeah, Spain's cool, but, like, I'm going to Paris. Her and her husband, they go to Paris, 1920s, and, like you said, that was, like, a really, really cool place to be creatively, right? Because at this right. point, it is the artistic capital of the world. And, like, I know that Norway met, like, Pablo Picasso. What? Yeah, and, like, Diego Rivera. Like are they artist, are they yeah. frenzies? Frenzy friends? Maybe I. The details are light, especially with the content in English, as to like what she was up to when she was there. So I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that she totally had a taste of like what it was like to be immersed in like a creative bohemian scene. And I'm pretty sure she was like, yeah, this is exactly where I want to be. Navi, bohem. No, I don't. I don't know what that means. Somebody here was a drama kid, a theater kid, and the other one was not. No, the other one got roped into it and then decided to take a tech position, and then someone got disqualified because she had a seat, and then I was all by myself. It's not because I didn't want to be there. It's because physics is hard, okay? That's okay. I might have done not well in my computer science class, but whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so back to Paris. (laughs) So I said there would be some drama. Um, things between Nawe and her husband were not great. So they had a child who passed away not too long after birth. Aww. Yeah, I I don't I don't know the details like at all, but Nawe's husband blamed it on her. Shocker. Yeah. Fucking dick. Well, you know, if he's going to make an accusation like that, then she might as well say, yeah, well, you're totally gay. (laughs) Which, okay, yeah, he was. But, like, at the time, that's not something he really wanted, like, he didn't want to be out. Oh, wait, so he was. He was. She accused him of being a closeted gay man, and um, he he actually was. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, Oh, no. So, no surprise that when they, the couple returned back to Mexico in 1921, now she was 28, they separated and, like, had nothing to do with one another ever again. Okay. Yeah. So, you Just know. Just went about their, their thing. Their way. Yeah. Now, Nawe, she moved back to Mexico City, and she, she was killing it. Like, I think she was just very much, an, like, an extrovert. You know, people commented that, like, it seemed at parties everyone knew her. So me. 
Yeah. <laughs> I just, I think, she, yeah, she was very outgoing and had a very big personality and wasn't really taking shit from anyone. So at the time, the timing was well because she was riding this like post revolutionary wave of creativity that was really propelling Mexico's art scene. Okay. And at this point, it was like, it was really robust in Mexico City. Like they're most well known for like the mural artwork done during this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you saying that about uh Maria Izquierdo. Yeah. We we touched yeah. on that a bit. She she encountered she had to navigate that in that episode. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of really rich creativity just because culturally and socially things have changed a bit. Things are a little bit more liberal. And since like returning from Europe, Nawe, like she has taken up painting. So she enrolls in an art school. At this point she's writing poetry. And she's working more as an artist model for some really big names, like mural artist Diego Rivera, who is one of the big three mural artists and also the husband of Frida Kahlo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then also... And was also a dick. Yeah. Which, yes. Yes. We'll draw a comparison to that couple in a sec. Mm. And she also modeled for American photographer Edward Weston. I know that name. You know that name. I I feel like anyone who's taken a photography class, even just an intro one, you've seen his work at some point. He's the guy that's well known for black and white photography oh. of sensual um, bell peppers. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it's yeah. that guy. They're black and white, and they're the form of yeah. He's into forms. Yeah, but a little abstracted, but also organic mm-hmm. forms that harken to the human body. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Nawe, like, she she did some modeling for him, and he said for, of his visit down there that the picture he took of her was the best one he did. For the photo of Edward Weston that took of her that he really liked, it's a really raw one. Like, it looks like she's she's crying or she's a little upset and she's a little disheveled a bit. I don't like how dark her eyes are. Like, I understand the, the raw one, but he could have totally, like... He could have dodged that a little bit to make the eyes pop a little more. You know, it's funny you mentioned her eyes because that was, like, the one characteristic that, like, she – people really commented on and she really defined herself by, like, her green eyes. Yeah. Like, you can you can tell that they're beautiful, but and I know that this isn't about her being beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. I know that this is, like, a raw – like, she's not smiling. This isn't, like, one that, like, a sexy picture, but, like, her eyes are – they're lost in the shadows right now. Like, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't – I wouldn't – put it out like that but i'm also not a professional photographer so what and do i know she actually didn't really want him using that photo she was like i really don't like that one can you use another one really yeah okay but he just he All just right. felt like it was the strongest one that he had taken while he was visiting well because i'm looking at the other ones and these other three are much stronger i'm sorry i'm like i'm i'm my photographer is coming out don't worry about it <laughs> But, like, the work she was doing for him and also for these other artists, it was considered scandalous. So, now, wait, like, she's she's good-looking. She's posing nude. She's divorced. Oh. Oh, no. She's also known for her erotic poetry. And, like, she's a sexual person, and she's not ashamed of it. Yeah. Yeah, that was enough for people to be like, what? A woman? <laughs> An agent of her own sexuality? What? <laughs> For that, it's really no surprise that unfortunately later on, as Mexican society swung more conservative in the World War II era, like, she went out of fashion. She was mm. not popular anymore. She was, she was shunned a bit. But I feel like her work is very French. Is that just me? No, 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 no. That's a good way of putting it. So when, 
Lawe returned to Mexico. It wasn't long before she fell in love with an artist 20 years her senior. Shocker. Yeah, which I was also thinking about. So Diego Rivera was also like way older than Frida Kahlo. And I was like, that's curious. I wonder if like we've covered some people who like learn trades from their fathers, like be it in science or arts. Mm-hmm. And, like, I wonder if th- that's another workaround for women who are in a society where it's like it's a patriarchal structured society. And they know that without the backing of a man, they're not going to be able to like move forward in their given field. And I I see these marriages as a way of subverting it. If you're like, okay, well, I'm creative. I'm passionate about this. Like, I know if I marry so-and-so, that'll help me further my career. Right. So, that kind of... Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't tell you this, but, like, when she first showed up at university, when she was an assistant there, like, she was financially backed by her dad still. Like, Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah. I mean, especially if they're not paying her. Like, like you need that support. dad. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how you get ahead, especially in circumstances where, as just a woman by yourself, like, you're not going to get any help. No. Yeah, you're just going to be dismissed. So, the guy that, sh- that Nawe fell for was called Dr. Alto. A-T-L. Oh. A-T-L? Just A-T-L. Which, so it's Dr. Alto. It's A-T-L. The whole time I was writing this out, I was like, I just want to call him Dr. Alt. That's not what it is, <laughs> though. Well, that's what's <laughs> stuck in my head. Yeah. But there, there's a description from his diary of what it was like when he first met her. So it was like this. I came back to the house from a party, my head all the light and my soul aflutter, in the midst of the swaying crowd that filled the room, a green abyss opened before me like the sea, deep as the sea, the eyes of a woman. I fell into this abyss instantly like a man slides off a high rock and rushes into the ocean. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Damn. They, they 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 really fell hard for one another, like real quick. Damn. And he he was a respected writer, a painter, a political activist. He was a scientist too, specialized in volcanoes. Oh, that's a uh, volcanology. Yep. And he yeah. he decided to start his own art school in an old colonial era monastery that had been abandoned. That's pretty awesome. So, like, right away, they, like, move in together. They live in the monastery. And it's a very tumultuous relationship between the two. Mm. So they they feed off of one another's creativity. Like, his science writings would influence Nawe's poetry. And, like, Nawe, like, she was often a subject of his paintings. So, like, would, yeah, would feed that. into, like, his, his work. Mm-hmm. And it's at this time that Nawe, like, Starts going by this name and not her given family name. And it was Dr. Not Mr. Alt who gave her that name. Huh. <laughs> he gave her that name? He, so he did. So he had actually changed his own name, right? So Dr. Alt, again, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. Um, his name was actually Geraldo. Geraldo? Geraldo, yeah. Geraldo. But in Nahuatl language, which was the ancient Aztec language, that means water. Mm. And, like, a whole point of the Mexican Revolution was to push away colonizers and, like, embrace the idea of Mexicanidad. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which Mm -hmm. is the essence of being Mexican. So for Dr. Alto and many others, embracing these traditional as, like, Embracing traditional Aztec culture was a way of doing that. Mm. 
and like okay. reclaiming a national identity that had been stripped away from like the Spaniards and from Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I could see that. And so he kind of bestowed upon Nawe like that this name, Nawe Olin. Um, he sounds like he's full of himself. Yeah, I I think to the extent they they both are. They're both very confident, forward people who. Like, they're that couple that you invite into a party and you know they're always going to have a fight. Yeah. But then you also know awkwardly if they're staying over the night, like, it's going to, you're going to hear them make up sex. Or they're going to try to get you in a threesome. Yeah. You know that, that, baby, I don't know. (laughs) But things between them were were not to last. Welp. (laughs) So as he became, like, more well-known within the creative community and his school became more popular jealousy mm-hmm. did creep in oh of course yeah so no wait she'd written a letter to him and it, this is what it said quote i know that my beauty is superior to all these beauties you could find your aesthetic feelings were brought out by the beauty of my body the splendor of my eyes the candence of my walk the gold of my hair the fury of my sex and no other beauty could take you away from me Ugh. yeah a little, a little possessive whoa Grow up. So one night, her doctor wakes up to find Nawe standing over him with a gun pointed at him. What? Yeah. Didn't shoot what him. The hell? Just shot bullets into the floor beside the bed. Oh, God. Well, abusive, slightly. And then on another occasion, she allegedly tried to push two women off of the balcony at the school who the doctor may or may not have been sleeping with. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, this is not healthy at all. No. At at all. For the the culture, though, like with machismo culture. Oh, yeah. It was presumed that like a guy could sleep around and have affairs and his partner would just have to deal with it. And so he did that. Like, I think he probably had affairs and he was like, well, you'll just have to deal with it. And she was like, no. No. Not a healthy way that she went about it. No. So, yeah, by the end of the 1920s, they split, which was like for the best really good idea yeah yeah and like as problematic as the relationship was it actually did help fuel laoi's like visual art and cement her own painting style like during that period okay very cool so like the work she's doing she's painting scenes from life basically she's treating her canvas like journal entries like the like izquierda did right uh yes yeah, so the, the other artist, Maria, that we cover, she did something similar, you know, painting scenes from, like, domestic life. She also did a little bit more, like, dynamic, like, landscapes and still lifes mm-hmm. and kind of loaded them with symbolism. Loading your work with symbolism at this point was super popular. That's what yeah. all the mural painters were doing. You know, they're creating these big uh, composite pieces with, like, allegorical figures and talking about, like, you know, wealth and class and government and there's a lot to it, and that's fine, but I think it's also just as fine that Nawe was like, that's cool. I just, like, I just want to paint pin- pictures of cats. And she did. And that's, like, that's <laughs> fine, too. I see that. So she wasn't really, like, riding this whole wave of nationalism that a lot of artists were. Mm-hmm. She was like, no, I, I just want to make, like, my own art, just about my own experiences. And, like, you know, there wasn't that need to make it about something bigger. Right. Just, like... Which I I think her work is fun for. It's very fun, yeah. <gasps> this tabby with the umbrella. Yeah, I think there's a painting of a cat. It's 
kind of laying in its paw stretched and with the perspective of things, it almost looked like it's holding a umbrella, but the umbrella is actually in the background. But really, he's just grooming himself. Yeah. So the way she painted, some people consider naive, you know, and that's usually used in a pejorative sense. But there's a curator at the Museum of National Art in Mexico City that like argues against that and says that while there's more of a simplistic quality to her paintings, she's she's essentially painting from memory. Mm-hmm. And she's not looking to create something that's, you know, really tightly rendered because she's trying to, you know, communicate the impression of a moment that she went through, that she lived in. Right. And that's what her paintings are about. Like, they're not meant to be tightly refined. I'm getting a print of this tabby. <laughs> she's got quite a few um, paintings of cats, which I didn't quite realize. There's actually a whole blog about cats in artwork. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We'll have that up on the show notes. But I was like, yes. Oh, yes fun i like found three articles about her and then that <laughs> like okay all right i can make this work this is great yeah so she kind of like flattens depth a little bit eyes she loves to enlarge eyes and really makes that the most like accent most accented facial feature you know forearms are kind of simplified she's painting these broad brush strokes the colors are really rich and vivid and you know like we said like lots of cats and she does, you know, incorporate the people, like, her significant others in the works, too. So, in 1929, that way, she met and fell in love with a sea captain. And, like, for a few years, like, they traveled together. And Nawe would often paint the two of them, like, physically embracing together, like, naked, with the backdrop of the city that they were visiting behind them. I see the one you're looking at. Yeah, which is kind of sweet to be like, oh, do you remember that time you made love to me in New York City? That's definitely not New York City. They would just kind of go up and down, like, more so the East Coast. Content-wise, Nawe. I mean, she's very forthright in her paintings about her sexual energy. And they're not explicit paintings at all. No. Like, they're embracing. You're like, okay, yeah, she probably means they're having sex. But you're just like, oh, they're just kind of hugging. You can see her butt. He definitely spanked her a little bit, though. I like how that's the detail you pick up on the painting. What? I mean, come on. I'm thinking of the overall, like, composition. I'm like, oh, yeah, the spine is kind of weirdly, like, elongated anatomically. It's a little off, but that's not what she was going for. You're Are like, you kidding he me? He smacked that ass. Her ass is red. <laughs> okay, also, technically, like, monitor colors might be different, so. Uh, no. <laughs> no, this, this woman. Also, I don't even know if we're talking about the same painting. <laughs> There's that That's too. True. We really are talking about this. We're we we've been synced for years. Come on. Um, even <laughs> though we're technically like 300 miles apart right now, I, I I know what painting you're looking at. All right. So yes. Yeah, so in terms of showing her work, Nalway, she would show at galleries. She would organize her own shows, and you know she would display her art and her published books of poetry too. And she was really sa- like savvy at marketing. So, like, for her art openings, like, she would invite foreign dignitaries and, like, like ministry heads to come. Like, the Ministry of Finance or, like, the Ministry of, like, Education what? to come to her shows. <laughs> and they did. Like, there's records of them signing into, the, like, the guest book. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> They're all dad's friends. I'm sure her name, her last name carried meetings. Just because her dad did play such a big role, like, in the revolution that even though, yeah, he'd been banished to, like, Spain... Right. I'm sure there there is still respect for the family. Right. 
Because her and, like, her siblings, like, for the most part, I think they all came back and, you know, settled back into Mexico City. So, yeah, so she's organizing shows, I think, financially to keep things a little bit more stable. She's teaching in public art schools. Um, and so that that really was a stable, stable source of income late in her later years. But things did change for Nawe in 1934 when she was 41. So her captain, while he was away at sea, he died from food poisoning. Oh, no. Yeah, it, it hit her hard. And apparently, like, she would still go to the dock, like, you know, not quite believing that he just was never coming home. Oh. Yeah. Now, she had an art show that year. In 1937, she published another book of poetry, but slowly started withdrawing from public life. So by the 1940s, like, she falls off the map. Yeah. I mean, so, like, a few factors could contribute to it. I mean, one, losing your your partner. Right. Grief and depression are a bitch. She was also in her middle age, and... You know, she had written to Dr. Altul, women are only the age in their passion of bloom. When that flower wilts, the woman dies. Mm. So by her own words, I mean, she just might not have felt her full self by missing that part of her life and that person in her life. Right. So that could have been, you know, a thing of it too. And feeling older and, and, you know, maybe feeling like she's a little bit burnout, but I Mexico going to World War II and after, it was a more conservative society. So, like, all that rich creativity of, like, the 1920s and 30s, it really tempered as the years passed from the revolution. So. So she just, like, disappeared into the distance. Yeah. I mean, she, that, the family home that she was born into, it was left to her. And so she just kind of lived there with her cats. Yeah. Her nieces would come and visit. You know, they said that she still wore makeup just like she had when she was younger and that she loved going to her favorite French restaurants from a child. Uh, and I think she was just, she was uncompromising in that and those qualities of, like, who she was. Right. But, like, by the 1970s and for years after, now, it, like, she was viewed as just an artist's muse. Mm, like Instead this, of an artist. Yeah, like... She was seen as, like, a passive object as as opposed to someone who actually took an active role in contributing to the creativity of Mexico City and, and Mexico as a whole. That shit. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, for, she'd lived decades, like, outside the creative scene. And, you know, weirdly, occasionally, like, she'd sell naked photos of herself from the 1920s and 30s, like, at a nearby metro station. What? Yeah, so can you imagine, like, getting on, like, the L, like, at 40th Street, and there's some old woman peddling pictures from, like, the 1970s, like, of her, like, in her 20s and looking like hot shit? Oh, God. Like, you're just, like, not going to make eye contact. You're going to keep walking, like. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but I, she she would sell those photographs from the artists that she had worked with and, you know, make a peso here and there. But, you know. By 1978, she was 84. She she passed away in like near obscurity. Mm. Yeah, but thankfully, there has been growing interest and more importantly, appreciation for her work today. Okay. So really, in the last 20 years, there's been a resurgence of attention credited to like like two people. So an art collector and a journalist, and the journalist was the one who wrote the biography that I mentioned. Okay. And. That helped gain momentum, like, in the late 
90s like into the 2000s of like people being more aware of like her body of work and what she contributed to and like her poetry and her artwork in 2019 like there was even a movie made about her life oh i could not find it i well i could find where i could buy the dvd but unfortunately i couldn't stream it at all yeah i was really hoping i was like oh please let me be able to watch a movie for my podcast research right Uh, that did not happen yeah but i mean so obviously with that that was a major motion picture that came out of mexico oh that's cool yeah and then in 2018 there was a huge retrospective on nawe's work at the national museum of art in mexico city which to date has been the most comprehensive show to exhibit her work yeah and curators acknowledge they're like this is probably only about 50 percent of her work holy shit yeah they're like we you know we have a poetry we have artwork but she's like they were like she probably still kept creating in her later years we just Mm -hmm. don't know what happened to it or where it went i don't know where it went yeah so the head curator he's really credited the recent interest and in nawe's work and how her strong personality like resonates with people and like specifically women today. Just her being herself and liking cats. Yeah. Well, yes. Actually, that is still super relevant today. <laughs> and, and he said, he's like, you can see how she liberates herself. Like she takes control of her body and creates. Right. So like be it in the modeling that she did or in her paintings, like she she did that. Like she was an active agent, like in creating work. That's pretty awesome. Thought that I would end on one of her poems. You don't have me dying of laughter this time. I am the night. <laughs> uh, no, this one says nothing about night. Okay. I had to check. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this one is titled Insatiable Thirst. Oh, no. My spirit and my body are always mad with thirst for these new worlds. Then I go on creating without end and all of the things and all of the elements and of the beings who have ever new phases under the influence of my spirit and my body, which are always mad with thirst, unquenchable thirst of creative relentlessness. That's not the direction I thought it was going in. Okay, that's also when she was, like, not a 10-year-old child. I'm I'm just saying I've been horny. I know. But now my unquenchable thirst is nothing about sex, so I get it. Yeah, no, it's not getting into a pre-med program. (laughs) It's never ending, Megan. You will be mine. <laughs> I will have those student loans. <laughs> I'm already drowning in them. Might as well make them do something for oh, me. Oh my goodness, yeah. But yes, that is Maui Olin. Again. No. I'm so sorry if I've been mispronouncing her name this entire time. She's a white girl. Also, it's not like this is Spanish. This is the language of the ancient Aztecs. I I know, I know. It's okay. No, yeah, we're, we're giving we're giving Megan a a pass. I'm trying. I'm trying. Just like Wait, we do every me... episode. Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> I I really love having a wide range of artists that we cover, and so things are going to be diverse, and that means I I'm going to mispronounce some things sometimes. All right, and I'm going to tell you that, and I'm also going to tell you that I spend. A significant amount of time Googling these things to try to find people, native speakers, to tell me, like, what's up. And we love you for that, so thank you. Yes, I try. So, that is my artist, also known as Carmen Mondragon. Mondragon? Yes, that Spanish version. 
So that's what I got today. So we are our little cycle of life. I'm going to go paint my cat now. You should. Yeah, you've, you've actually technically painted ceramic versions of them. You've done little ceramic ornaments. No, you painted ceramic ornaments of them. I made a Christmas tree, rainbow pride, and also a penis. Ah. I also made a bear, really sad-looking bear, polar bear. Half of him is missing. It broke off, so the front half is there, and the back half, he's he's just a he's bipedal. He needs a wheelchair now. You could mix media it, <laughs> or like paperclip a wheelchair to him with buttons as the wheels. Okay, if I don't see that the next time I see your Christmas tree, I'm gonna be real disappointed. <laughs> you gotta come visit me first. That's right. Once the plague get, is over. Get up here. Oh my god. Miss you so hard. <laughs> Miss you too. As always, if you guys have made it this far, we super duper appreciate it. We you guys are pretty cool. Milana, if people want to see pictures of these cat paintings at all, or to find out more about who we've covered today, or if they've got suggestions on people they want to see us cover this season, where can they go? We have a website. MyFavoriteFeminist.com. Our Facebook and Instagram are both under My Favorite Feminist. Our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. Our email is info at MyFavoriteFeminist.com. And you can listen to us where you can listen to any podcast. Like any, any major apps that have podcasts, we're on those. <laughs> so what you're listening to now, you're you're good. Right. You're good. Right. You know. So it takes two seconds. Please like, rate, subscribe, and in any comment section below, or even you can email us. You can let us know if your art was like a journal entry. What would it be, Megan? <laughs> I feel like I'm sorry. I feel like for so many of us right now. I mean, a little less so since there's thankfully a new presidential like administration in, but it would just be a lot of abstract, like angry scribbles. Yeah. Like <laughs> just vigorous, like crayon, like scribbling of like black and red. Rah, like that's what it would be. Just, like, <laughs> just embodied. <laughs> just like that. Mine would be hmm, little little bits pieces here and there like close-ups of like silks coming from the ceiling or like somebody's leg extension when they're doing like like an arabesque on a a hoop Mm -hmm. something of a studio that's what i would paint most of that's my happy place everyone needs something like that right now i like to think that you know we're a small part of that for whoever's listening out there right now just a little sliver of hope in your day a little little bit of happiness oh Happiness, mispronouncing things, we've got it all. You know. (laughs) All right, well, as always, we will see you guys next time. So until then, bye. Put a camera in, not a teddy bear, because you don't have a teddy bear. Put a camera in Cameron the Carrot. <laughs> you just reminded me. So when I was really little, I had two stuffed animals and they were best friends. And one was a little Dalmatian puppy and another one was a teddy bear with a little bow tie. Oh. And they were about the same size. So of course they're best friends. Duh. Of course. 
and one of the eyes on the teddy bear had fallen out, so he glued in a marble. <laughs> like, as a kid, you're like, that makes sense. Like, yeah. <laughs> but thinking about it, you said, you know, get a camera and a teddy bear. And I just thought of, like, my little brown teddy bear with his yellow bow tie and, like, his one, like, opalescent, like, eyeball marble. <laughs> like, actually, that's a little creepy. He thinking had about it. It's fine. So, He's yeah. getting old. Yeah. That's a I don't, I don't know what happened to it, but yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah. okay, here's another story. My mom oh, no. hated that teddy bear. Why? Because I guess apparently something happened and my dad got arrested. And so he was with my brother, William. And so he was at the, like, the police station and they gave him the teddy bear. <gasps> yeah. Someone picks him up and of course my mom's pissed because she's got to go get the kid and like, oh my God, he got fucking arrested and I was got this teddy bear and I guess the teddy bear just stayed and then I got a hold of the teddy bear later on and she was like, oh, that fucking teddy bear, I should have thrown it out because every time she looked at it, she just thought of that one time that my dad got arrested, like, <laughs> oh, no. she had to pick up her stepson from the jail. So that's the story of my one-eyed teddy bear with a marble that was best friends with my Dalmatian puppy stuffed animal when I was in kindergarten. 